Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be the first elaboration episode regarding the Vin Armani interview that I did. So in the previous episode, I released part one of that interview. That will be, by the way, part one of four. And then in between each part, I am doing some elaboration and commentary, getting into some of the things that we discussed even further. So this will be the first episode of that. Now, I am actually actually going back and re-recording this intro. That is what you are listening to right now. I had to scrap the first one because by the time I got to the end of this one, it didn't even make it halfway through my notes as far as the things that I wanted to elaborate on. And if you checked the time before you downloaded and started listening, you'll notice that this is a pretty long episode. And so this elaboration part will be broken up into two sections. So when I get back to the original intro, I start telling you about what's coming up. Consider that what's coming up for the next two episodes, not just this one right now. This one right now will mainly just focus on the different social cycle theories and historical patterns that we mentioned, that Ven and I mentioned as we were discussing these things. But mainly, he just went into Sarkar and his theories, and that was the main one we focused on. And then I got into my own a little more a little later on. And so I want to draw out some of these others more, and that's mainly what this episode does. There's a little more, and um, I get into some stuff before that and a little in between, but that is the bulk of what this episode is. And then in the next episode is when I'll get more into the next upcoming age and talking about the is-ought issues and theocratic technocracy, these types of things. That'll come up in the following episode. Now, just to give a heads up, there is a decent amount of, let's say, religious content, specifically Christian, mainly, because Vin and I do end up getting a decent bit into spirituality and prayer, especially near the end of the episode. That is something that he believes very strongly about, and he believes plays a very large role, or should play a very large role, in regards to how to navigate the dim age. And so, that is partly why I am definitely referencing this a lot, and we reference that a lot more getting further into the interview. But I'll, I'll start off with Vin's response, um, talking about Abraham and Jewish interpretation of Scripture and some different theories involved with that. So we have that. And then I have my own historical patterns related to biblical patterns. And if you look at the biblical story and the account and follow the timeline, there are there is a historical pattern there that reveals itself as you look through that. And so I'll talk about that. But just as a heads up, this in general is not a religious podcast. I am not a preacher, but there is a decent bit of that type of content in here. So take it for what it is. I also want to thank the newest Patreon supporter, Ashley. She just joined as of me re-recording this intro. So luckily she gets to make it in on this episode. She joined Steven and Alex and Darius and Pat and Brad as all of the patron supporters. And so thank you very much. If anyone is interested, feel free to visit the Patreon page. It's in the show notes. And I did finally release all four parts of the Ven Armani interview on the Patreon page. So if 
if that's something that you really want to hear and you really don't want to wait for it, feel free to sign up on Patreon and just sign up for one month and consider it buying the episodes. It'd be roughly a dollar an episode, plus you get access to all the other episodes that I've released on there that are guest appearances I've done and other things like that. I think the only one that is not released anywhere is an episode I did on the Rothschilds, and so that might be of interest to you as well, but feel free to take advantage of all of that content for a month and then cancel if that's just something that you really want to get a hold of um, as far as listening to the entire interview without having to go through all these different elaboration episodes in between. But mainly, I do feel that it is extremely important for me to go through these elaborations and this commentary because there is so much depth in this interview that Vin and I did together. And there are so many things that get referenced, that get briefly mentioned, or that get described in one way, but there's four other ways that are very useful for identifying what's going on in today's society. How do we navigate that? What does that mean? Why are things happening in this way? These types of things. So it provides a very good framework and worldview where we can see what's going on in society, see what's happening in history as history is being made in front of our eyes, and we can actually understand, at least to a degree, what is going on and why it is happening and how it fits in within these patterns and how all these different people have basically explained ahead of time what these trends are and why they exist and where we are headed. And so that is probably very useful information to have. So please, if you are interested and willing, go through all of these episodes as I do these elaborations because it is there is a lot there. And I know you probably won't be going through every single one of those references and reading all these books and doing all this research yourself because you know I don't blame you. We don't have time for that. That's dozens of hours worth of research and that's probably not going to happen. But you can listen to these elaboration episodes and the Venermani interview as a whole and you can get the majority of the applicable information, at least within the context of what we're discussing with the dim age and that kind of stuff. And so I think this is very valuable. Now I'll go back to the original intro that I had made and pick up where I start describing what I'll be talking about in this episode. And again, apply this for this episode and the following. To give you a rough idea of what we're getting into, the first subject will be the matter of Abraham that I touched on on the end of last episode. Uh, Vin reached out with a little more of an explanation of his view on that. So I'll talk about that a little bit. That'll lead into the interpretation of scripture and some different perspectives of that. Then we'll talk a little bit more about the Varnas and Sarkar's theories. We didn't really get to go in depth into some aspects of those that I think are worth drawing out, as well as some of the other social cycle theories and historical cycles that we reference, such as Sorokin and the Fourth Turning. And I have uh, some of my own related to biblical patterns and William Henry Smith. I have mentioned him before in other episodes. Uh, He's got some cool ideas there as well that are very relevant. And so we'll talk about all those things. We'll talk about the role of language and how that relates to reality. We will talk about 
this aspect of the merchant class and the age of economics and how there are corruptions that come into play and how that relates to shifts in society. I'll get into the next cycle that we're heading into, the age of science, talk a little bit more about that, a little bit about NPCs and what does that mean and how that relates. Uh, Then a little bit more about the is-ought issue. We talked about that a decent bit, but there are a few examples that I think are worthwhile to draw out related to COVID and current things that are going on and this new age of science we're entering into. And so I'll give some examples of the is-ought framework in that context. Talk a little bit about technocracy and specifically theocratic technocracy. Then talked about how we are in a theocracy. And so I'll play out how that works within the framework of a technocratic governance system. And the final subject will be related to religion. We'll talk about pop Christianity or cultural Christianity and the radicalization of the Church of Woke and the different extremes there and how those play out. So that's the rough outline. As you can tell, there's a lot of stuff there. And just like the interview that we did, there is a lot going on. We're covering a lot of different things. And so you have been warned. So the first thing would be the issue of Abraham. I mentioned how the biblical story is a little different than the way that Vin alluded to when he was talking about Abraham being a pimp that didn't really fall in line with at least the literal interpretation of the biblical story. And so let me read to you what Vin said, because I think he says it probably better than I. So I'm just going to read his words. He said, I wanted to give you some background to my statement, which was meant to provoke just that type of response. Two points. First, if we are to take it that Genesis was written by Moses, or at least a priest of the Mosaic line, then the style of writing is going to express the hermetic mystery schools Moses was a trained Egyptian priest. Mystery school rites and texts always have an outward meaning for the uninitiated and an occult meaning for the initiated. If you know what you are looking for, the hidden story in Genesis is really obvious. Any hermetic text read at face value is missing the actual point. Second, The pattern exhibited by Abraham in that initial story is the pattern of a pimp. I had a long career in sex work, and almost entirely, the relation between a pimp and a prostitute is a conspiracy between spouses. Although it is toxic and corrupt, the relationship of a prostitute to her pimp, and often vice versa, is one of extreme devotion at a level of wife and husband. However, when she is with a client, both the pimp and the prostitute are conspiring in a charade that they are not lovers or spousers, etc., as the prostitute plays that role, temporarily, for the client. And the result of playing that charade is a material gain. Prostitution is the oldest profession, so this pattern of a man, who is actually a husband, presenting his beautiful sister to a wealthy and powerful individual in exchange for material gain is absolutely ancient. Also, remember that when he does this, he is Abram. He is not yet in full communion with God and renamed Abraham. There is a whole lot hidden in those early chapters of Genesis. It is a worthy treasure hunt. So that is uh, roughly everything that Vin Armani said in response to me pointing out the contradiction between the face value biblical account and his reference to Abraham being a pimp. And so I... 
I think that deserves a little exploration here because there are a lot of issues like this that come up. And there are many perspectives on religious texts and religion in general. And so I want to draw out this issue a little more. And it really made me think of the Jewish interpretations of how they would interpret different scriptures. And the Gnostics as well looked at things in a similar way. Uh, The idea of Gnosticism is that there's this hidden knowledge and something deeper than what is actually being said. And, you know, obviously that's what Vin was talking about that there is a deeper hidden meaning to things. So first, I will reinforce Venn's argument here and say that even when you go back to Jewish scholarship, they had multiple ways of interpreting the text of exegesis. So these are called, and uh, forgive me for the pronunciations, I have no idea I'm guessing here, but they are called partes or partas or something of that nature. And the four that they list out here would be, number one, the pashat meaning. And the pashat meaning of a scripture is the straight or literal meaning. It means what it says. And that would be the pashat sense of the scripture or the text. The next layer is the remez meaning, and that would be something that is a a deeper meaning, something that is hinted at, but not maybe outright in the text. So that would be the remez meaning. And then you have the duresh meaning, and that would be more metaphorical or more comparative. Oftentimes, that's related to Mosaic law and how things in Mosaic law relate to the text that you are looking at. That would be the Duresh meaning. The final one would be the Sod meaning. And the Sod would be the esoteric. It would be something more mystical, something you would receive through inspiration or revelation. And so there is this idea in Jewish scholarship, and we would say that the Jewish scholarship would be a a good historical viewpoint to look at when we're trying to interpret the Jewish scriptures, And so with their view, they also said something similar to what Vin laid out, where there are these multiple ways of interpreting the same text. And I think Vin would be pointing to either the remez sense, the hinted, the deeper meaning, or probably more the sowed sense of something that is a little more mystical and gained through inspiration, maybe a meaning that you can't get unless it is revealed to you. But uh, either way, that is not a new original concept. It's not like Venn just made that up. That exists not only in Jewish scholarship, but like I mentioned with the Gnostics and in other forms and specifically related to interpreting the scripture of the Bible. So there is that. Venn also mentioned the difference of Abram's activities versus Abraham's activities. You know, same person in a sense, but God changed his name and he changed his ways in a sense. And so uh, there is a relation here with Sarah as well. She at first was Sarai, and the meaning of that word is mockery. And then she was, her name at least was changed to Sarah. And the meaning of Sarah is princess. Now, when she was involved in these activities, that would have been under the earlier time period when her name was named after mockery. And then afterwards, when she was more in line with God and his ways, then she was going under the name of princess or Sarah. And so that kind of goes along with that as well. So there there are definitely arguments to be made there. And I will also make the counter arguments as well. This would 
probably initially be framed around the fact that if you take the texts as having hidden meanings that you only know through revelation or through something that's passed down through other people, then that is kind of a dangerous position to be in because oftentimes the interpretation or the meaning that you get out of that might not actually be the true meaning. If it's a hidden meaning, how are you sure that the hidden meaning you come to, that deep revelation that you get, how can you be sure that is actually true? Because it's not in the text and it's not in commentary that you might read. And so you're getting it from either a mystery school or some source like that or through direct revelation. So it's something that is, uh, let's say, not very material and that doesn't mean that it is wrong, but it also is much harder to verify. So there is that issue with taking that approach to interpreting scripture. And there are also some verses that talk about similar things. So we could go to the Old Testament in Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19. It says, For thus says Adonai, who created the heavens, God who shaped and made the earth, who established and created it, not to be in chaos, but formed it to be lived in. I am Adonai, there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the descendants of Jacob, it is in vain that you will seek me. I, Adonai, speak rightly. I say what is true. So he's specifically saying that the things that he says and reveals are not secret things. They're not hidden things. They're things that are revealed to all, and specifically the descendants of Jacob, the believers, so to say. Now, when you get into the New Testament, there's another verse that might be worth looking into. That would be in Matthew 10, verse 26 and 27. And this would be Jesus speaking. He says, So do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be uncovered, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. So this is something that Jesus is telling his disciples. These are the people that he taught directly. And so if you look at the New Testament and maybe get some deeper interpretations or deeper meanings to what Jesus said, on one hand, those do exist. Jesus explains his parables in multiple places and explains how there are hidden meanings, so to say. It's not just the literal surface level interpretation of what he says. But he also specifically tells these interpretations, and he tells his disciples that they shouldn't keep hidden the things that he is teaching. So you have the entire rest of the New Testament where these teachings are elaborated on, and in theory, they are not keeping some hidden secret knowledge away, or they are and they're totally disobeying what Jesus told them to do. And so you've got that issue there as well. So there are some arguments to be made on either side as to whether or not we could look at the Bible as something that is literal as far as how it is meant to be read and taken or something that has some deeper meanings or some combination of both. So I just wanted to go ahead and present both of those. And since Ven was kind enough to go ahead and elaborate and tell me directly kind of where he was coming from from that, I wanted to touch on that to begin with. I should probably also say that, especially from the Jewish perspective and the Christian perspective, the layered meaning of a text should never contradict the base meaning of the text or of the scripture. And so if there is a verse that says one thing and the literal meaning is one thing, then the hidden and deeper meanings shouldn't contradict 
the base meaning of that. And so that would be the view probably that most Jewish scholars would have, as well as the majority of Christian scholars would have. And so that is also a potential conflict there, where if you say that there is a hidden or deeper or inspired meaning that you're not going to get if you're not initiated, if it hasn't been revealed to you, whatever the case may be, then from at least some perspectives, you have to make sure that that interpretation, that revelation, that deeper meaning does not contradict what is said in the first part. And I'm not going to go into detail or comment on whether Vin's opinion on those verses in that story match up with which or what aspect of what I just laid out. It's something that you can come up with your own opinions on. I just want to make sure that I present all the different views and many of the different perspectives, at least the most common ones, so that maybe you are able to make up your own mind or at least have an educated foundation on those types of things, because those types of things are going to come up later about the difference between something that you get from a mystical revelation versus a material revelation. And that's something that I'll get into later on. I don't know if it'll be this episode or another, but that will be coming up later. Now, one of my favorite things that we got into was this idea of social cycles or historical cycles, historical patterns, these types of things. That's something I've been digging into a lot over the past year or two, and I really have an affinity towards that, and I think it is very useful. And so that's something that I definitely wanted to bring out a little more. Now, Vin made a good point when he mentioned how when he hears the words sensate and ideational, like when I mentioned Sorokin's theory, he knows what that means. He already has that framework of the mystical and the material, and he is correct in that. And there is also a point to be made that you can't look into every single theory. You can't dive into all of these different things. It just takes too long. From a practical standpoint, you can't do that. And you might get new things from these different things. And he admitted, yes, I might pull something good out of this or a way that it's presented from that person might be beneficial or whatever. You might get some added benefit, but that is maybe something that would have diminishing returns the more you dig into these because there are some main patterns that continue no matter which viewpoint you are looking from. But I would say that each one of these different patterns or social cycle theories or whatever you want to call them, each one they do have their own unique viewpoints. They have their own unique aspects that I at least know of some of them. And so I think they are at least worthy of elaborating on because although maybe the main story might be this shift between the material and the immaterial, and I'm not even positive that that's actually the main shift that's happening, but it is at least one of the main shifts, even though that is the case and it's repeated in these different patterns, there are some other more unique aspects that really help us to see what's going on in today's world. And so I think that is worth addressing. Now, the first one would be the idea of the Varnas. And this would be from Sarkar. This would be the one that Vin did touch on multiple times in the interview. He touched on it again in some later sections as I release the next parts. You'll hear that come up again. But he talks about how there are these four types. There's the 
intellectual, the warrior, the acquisitor, and the laborer. And there are many different ways of saying these different things. It might be the merchant, or it might be the priest, or whatever. But basically, those are the four classes. And he mentioned how that's built on the Hindu caste system. And I'll actually elaborate on some of that in a later episode, because this aspect comes up again later in the interview. And uh, through the course of the discussion, basically, he kind of gets cut off from elaborating on how Sarkar lays that out for the individual classes and a little more detail on that. And so uh, when I play that part in that next elaborating episode, I'll get into that aspect. But the aspect I want to get into right now would be that of the Hindu system. And from their point of view, you have these different yugas, these different ages that occur, and they do go from mystical to material. But the way that they look at this is that it's a fairly linear progression or actually a regression. So you start off with the, and again, forgive me for pronunciations, I'm just going to guess on all these. You can figure it out if you really want to know. But the first one is the Satya Yuga, and that would be the Age of Truth. This is more of a utopia where the land produces without labor, and we have the fullest amount of virtue in this age. This would be the original utopian age. And then in the next age... And uh, by the way, that would be where if you overlay Sarkar's views, that would be the age of the commoner, the first age of man, the age of survival in my own framework. And so in the next age, you have this age of the warrior, and this would be looked at as the Treta Yuga. And this would be one that is three-fourths full of virtue. And you will see that there is a regression here. You lose a fourth of the amount of, I guess, societal virtue that occurs in each one of these yugas. But in this one, you have a fourth of sin start to come into play. And this is where you have emperors and war and agriculture and mining. These things start to come into play. And so, again, that does fit with the warrior mentality. And when I talk about the age of religion, where you have these first civilizations that are starting to develop, usually based on a religion, and usually the head person is some direct descendant of the gods, or is a god, or something, and it's all organized around a religion, usually. But there is this aspect of corruption and sin that is starting to come into play here, at least based on the system. The following yuga, and that would be the Drapara yuga, this one is half of the virtue that was originally there. So it's half virtue and half sin. This is the age of the priest or the thinker from Sarkar's perspective or the age of empires from my own framework. And in this age, you have cultural corruption. You have immaturity within society. You have disease. You have escalating warfare, these types of things going on. And again, that fits very well with the age of empire as well. And then in the following age, and this would be somewhat of the final age, it would probably be the age we are in or coming out of. This would be, on my framework, the age of economics, or Sarkar says this is the age of the merchant. This would be the Kali Yuga. And in this age, there is only one-fourth virtue, three-fourths sin. This is an age 
age of darkness and ignorance. This is an age where people are slaves to their passions. They are liars. They are hypocrites. You have pollution. You have the disintegration of the family. And all of these things should sound very familiar when you overlay those onto our modern time period. These are the things that have been going on and are culminating in our current time period. Well, if you follow this pattern that is laid out through this yuga framework, the next age that we would be heading into would basically be a return to the Satya Yuga. And this would be a return to this utopian state, something that would return to having the land produce without labor, having full virtue. And if you think of living in a post-scarcity environment in a totally digital world that's completely perfect. Yes, these things line up fairly well with, in my framework, what is the age of science? Or according to Sarkar, I guess you would go back to and cycle back to the age of the commoner, the common person. Everyone is able to have this utopia and experience it and live within it and be a part of that society. So that would be some of the background information and more elaboration on the Hindu view of the yugas that we go through. And in their view, these yugas last for thousands of years, many thousands of years. And so again, you have to modify this if you are going to overlay it onto the type of framework that I am currently overlaying it onto. But as you can tell, it fits very well and it fits better and better the more you look at it and the more you overlay more of these theories and cycles and things like this. They make more and more sense and they overlay on top of each other very well, which is to me, something that reinforces the validity of these things and the merit to really looking into them. So the next one that was mentioned in our interview was the fourth turning. And that is one that has particularly really caught my attention personally. And I have really enjoyed looking into this because it does have kind of a different perspective and some unique aspects to it. So with this theory, what has been done is societies basically go through these cycles and they say that these cycles last for roughly the length of a generation. And within each cycle, there are four turnings. You have the first turning, the second turning, the third turning, and the fourth turning. And that's where the name comes from, the fourth turning, because they say now we are in currently the fourth turning. And so the way this works, and they trace this all the way back, I believe, to the War of the Roses. They definitely went back to the beginnings of America. And so they have overlaid how this really does play out and kind of proven historically that this is the way, at least, it has occurred in the past, repetitively over and over again within these cycles. One of the drivers that they really highlight is the fact that different generations of people fall in line with different archetypes. So you pretty much have the prophet, the artist, the hero, and the nomad. And basically, they overlap these archetypes that have different characteristics onto generations that exist within each turning. And as those archetypes play out their archetypical role, I guess that's the word for it, as they do this, then they are affecting history. They're affecting the way that things play out and the way society progresses. And as history plays out and society progresses, it has an impact on the certain generations that come up, 
creating the different archetypes that they fit into. And so it's this cyclical pattern that feeds itself over and over and over again. And to give you a rough idea of what they're saying, they would say that the first turning in our current cycle would be roughly from 1946 to 1964. And they say that this would be kind of the high period. The first turning is always the high period. To give an example of how they lay out the generational archetypes, I'll follow the boomer generation and how they lay that out because the boomers existed in the first turning as kids and they are still here in the fourth turning as the oldest generation that they cover. All the other generations phase out and new ones come back in, but the boomers are still here and where they're in the beginning. So the way they lay out the boomer generation is that that is the prophet archetype, and it is so in each one of the turnings as time goes on. But as children, they start off as being fairly indulged in their childhood. And as you shift into the second turning, they become a little bit narcissistic as young adults as they are coming into this second turning, which is an age of awakening. This would be from roughly 64 to 1984. And so you have these shifts in society with, you know, I would say maybe the hippie movement, you have Woodstock, you have tax revolts, you have Watergate, you have lots of things going on. That would be the period of awakening. And so then as you roll into the third turning, that would be 1984 to roughly maybe 2005-ish, the early 2000s at least, this would be a period of unraveling. And so with this, you have the culture wars, you have Y2K, you have lots of things going on from this perspective, and the boomers have now become fairly moralistic. And they are the ones that are taking a more prominent role in steering society. And so you have that playing out. So you have this first turning where society's at a high, and then you have this kind of awakening, whereas they're on that high point, you see some more uh, cultural things that are going on and awakening within the culture. And then you start to see some problems starting to develop, a bit of an unraveling. And then in the fourth turning that you phase into, you start to have a crisis, and that is the crisis period. And within this crisis period, the boomer generation, the prophet generation, is wise. They have been through all of this stuff before. They may have been indulged in their childhood, and they may have been a bit narcissistic as young adults. And in midlife, they were very moralistic, telling people what they should and shouldn't do. And now that they are older, they have become more wise, and they are kind of the ones to try to lead society during this crisis period, but they're not going to be the ones to do so. It's going to end up being the younger generations that have come up that really start to take the reins, and you're going to have some crisis play out. And this could be something like 9-11, something like the 2008 financial crisis would be probably a more accurate thing. You have something like COVID. And some of the examples that they give of previous crisis periods, uh, they have multiple things that are going on. So for example, you might have the Great Depression and the World Wars. And so it's not just one thing that happens, but there are multiple things that take place. So you could say that something like the 2008 financial crisis happens. You have 
COVID that happens, and then you have some major issue that possibly the financial crisis had a hand to play in creating, which you would say, you know, possibly an economic crisis. And that is definitely one that you could overlay onto the crisis period of, you could say, World War One, which definitely led to World War Two, and you had the Great Depression in between there that was somewhat related. You could say the same thing today. You had the 2008 financial crisis, which you could say the way that that was handled from an economic perspective by governments led to having another worse economic issue because they basically reinflated the bubble as much as possible, stimulated the economy, printed off a bunch of money, bailed out failing companies, and never really fixed the core problems there. And so that could lead to some major issues. And especially you have COVID. And it's not that COVID was really something that happened because of the 2008 financial crisis. But you could say that the response to COVID and the willingness to continue to print money and bail out people and companies and for governments around the world to take a more active role in society, that might have been encouraged by what happened in 2008 and how that was handled. And then you have, you know, potentially, I would say, an actual crash that happens and that is related to the first and also related to the interim period, the COVID part of the crisis. But, you know, I, these are all just my personal views on how this could be playing out. But either way, they had predicted long before COVID was a thing that we were in this period of the fourth turning. There would be different crises that would happen. You would have the younger generations kind of steering the ship and getting us into the first turning all over again and steering us into a new high point where there is new faith in the institutions. With the crisis, you are losing faith in all these governmental institutions institutions as such. And so there is a lot of reform, a lot of change that needs to happen. And that, again, is inspired by the younger generations. And that leads you into these new institutions with a lot more power, a lot more faith behind them and trust behind them in all the generations and this new high point in society. And you go through the cycle all over again. Now, in our current fourth turning scenario here. The generations that are at play are the boomer generation, the prophet generation. They're very wise. They are the elders. You have Gen X. They would be the nomad archetype. They are fairly pragmatic, and they're in their midlife time period, roughly. You have the millennial generation, and they actually coined the term millennial. They were the first ones to use that, as far as I know. And the millennial generation is the hero generation. They are heroic, and they are young adults in this crisis period. And then you have what they call the homeland generation, the generation after them. And they were kind of suffocated in their childhood. You have the helicopter parents kind of a thing going on there. And they are the youngest generation that's at least listed here. So to look at another example of how these archetypes play out, historically, you've got the millennial gener generation. That is my generation, actually. And if you look at maybe the parents of the millennial generation, whether that be probably the Gen X, and it depends on your age and how all this stuff lays out, but I'll go with Gen X. Gen X as a kid 
they were abandoned, according to their framework here. That's kind of the situation that they often were in. This was during the second turning, the awakening period, the Woodstock period, the free love movement. Children in that time period, at least according to this model, were roughly abandoned. And Gen X is overall the nomad generation. And so as they become young adults, they feel fairly alienated. This is during the third turning, the unraveling with the culture wars going on. You have the long boom, you have Y2K, you have all these things that are happening here. And so as they have children, whether they end up having children in the millennial bracket or the homeland bracket, and again, depending on the ages, that could vary there. But the millennial generation starts off in childhood as being very protected. Well, that would make sense if your parents grew up feeling abandoned. They came into, you know, this crazy things going on in the culture from the awakening period, and then even more culture wars and things like that going on during the unraveling period. It would make sense that they would be a little bit more helicopter parents, so to say. And so the millennial generation is fairly protected, or again, depending on the age, the homeland generation is listed as being suffocated. So a little more extreme there. And with this, the millennials as kids were always told that you can be anything you want to be, you know, reach for the stars, follow your dreams, these types of things, which would make sense that as they become young adults, they feel very heroic because they are reaching for their dreams and they are seeking these things and they probably are a lot more idealistic on how they see the world and a lot more open to changing the world and how it's run, which would make sense if they are the ones that shift us during this crisis period into new types of institutions or reformed institutions that get us into this high point of society all over again and help us recover from the crisis period. And so we see these generational aspects and archetypes really playing out. And I think they nailed it very well. And I think that can really help you to see what's going on and why. And I like this model because it's something that really covers more modern history. If you look at the most recent cycle and where we are in the fourth turning and why things and generations are playing out in certain ways and how that affects the culture, it really all ties in really well. And so I would recommend that if you're interested in that to look into the fourth turning. I think just the aspect of having a crisis period as the one that was predicted and is happening is very valuable information to have, as well as how institutions are viewed and handled and what happens with them. They get more power. They get reformed. These are things that we can see playing out fairly well. And so that is, again, just a very beneficial framework to have and to use and to study. Now, the next one that I want to mention is one that I didn't actually mention in our interview, but uh, you will see how it fits in extremely well and some of my background and where I was coming from with some of these things. And I actually did allude to it at one point where I mentioned the magical aspects of the age of economics and money and fiat money and these types of things. Well, some of that comes from William Henry Smith. And as far as I know, with William Henry Smith, he was the first person to coin the term technocracy. Some of his writings were compiled together and put into this book titled Technocracy, and that is one that I have really enjoyed. I have gone back to that over and over again because it's not just about 
technocracy as a system and what that means and all of these types of things. But he really gets into some more philosophical aspects as well as setting some frameworks that I used very heavily in figuring out my framework of the ages of man. And so that's worth touching on here. He wrote all of these writings in the 1920s. So this was quite a while ago. And probably his core thesis would be that past societies have been structured on these animal instincts that we all have. We have the will to live, the will to construct, the will to master, and the will to take. And he explains these in different ways and calls them different things. It might be the will to survive and the will to make, the will to control instead of master, or to acquire or hoard instead of take. But it's all the same stuff here. He creates this framework, and he says that the methods used by societies are either based on strength or cunning. This would be either brute force or relying on magic or cunning. And yes, you caught that keyword there of magic. And you also have this aspect of either mystery and classified information or education, which would be more like propaganda. And that these are things that are being used within these different structures of society. And he says that basically we need a new system that is not based on these old constructs and these old drives, but we need one that is based on a uniquely human instinct, the will to know. And we need a different method, not just brute force and not just cunning or magic. We need to use skill. And if we build a society based on the will to know through the method of skill, then this will be a society that would be worth living in and worth constructing. And this is his technocracy that he then develops the idea for here. It is not politicians that are running things. It is the technicians that are running things, the engineers, the scientists. And yes, that should sound very familiar. Trust the experts. We are definitely seeing that play out in today's world. I'm going to go over a few of the notes that I made the last time I went through his writings. I've gone through it two or three times. And the last time I did, I wrote down some notes on things that really stood out to me. And going back to these notes, I pulled them out a few days ago and seeing how spot on they are with the things that Vin and I talked about, it's definitely worth touching on. So I'm going to just hit on some of these things, but also keep in mind, do not forget these aspects of the will to live, the will to construct, to control, to acquire the method of skill and the will to know. These things will be used as I get into my own framework that I'll be talking about a little bit later on. So don't forget those things. But for some other things that he had mentioned and that he commented on, he talks about how a society needs to be controlled without being controlled. You need control without control. And although that sounds like something that is not able to happen, he says that this can be done through ideology. And if you have an ideology, then you don't necessarily have a set control over a society, a material control over it, but you are controlling the way society goes because they're all based around a specific ideology. So think 
maybe enlightenment ideals would be the ideology, this idea of making the world safe for democracy. And that would be maybe the previous ideology that was controlling society without actually controlling it. And the next one would probably be in line with the idea of wokeism in the church of woke. It's an ideology. It's a control without control. They're not openly controlling the government and telling people what to do, although there are aspects of that, this is much deeper and it has a much wider ranging reach. And so it's this idea of control without control. Smith says that societies and the masses follow leadership and we need new leaders. The current ones are not doing so hot. The politicians are corrupt. Nobody trusts them. They're not doing a very good job. And so we need new leaders of a different type. And this is where the idea of technologists and scientists come into play. People driven by the will to know. They're not like those politicians that are driven by the will to take or to acquire or to gain a bunch of personal wealth. They're not out for the will to control, the will to master and just rule over people. And so instead, and you know, not the other ones either, but instead we need people that are governed by this will to know a much more altruistic drive. And that's what he says we need to go into. And this is his idea of technocracy. Now, there are a few specifics that he talks about, and I'll mention a few of them here. The first would be that matters of chance are distributed to all. And so this idea of maybe a natural disaster or things that happen that are outside of our control, the consequences of this need to be distributed among the entire society. Everybody needs to pitch in. Everybody needs to help in order to take care of people that have been hit by circumstances that are outside of their control. All things in general are done for the good of what he calls the common wheel. He says that we need a national ideology and purpose and with this, we need a national council of scientists that are in power within a democracy. And so he has this idea of an industrial democracy with personal freedom for self-realization. But at the top of this, we have these this council of scientists in charge, these technocrats that are really running things and steering society, but not in a political way, not necessarily telling people what to do. These are people that are just driven by the will to know. They are very knowledgeable. Go back to Plato's philosopher kings. These are the types of people in charge, and they are just managing resources, making sure that we are creating them, allocating them, using them in a sustainable way that's fair for everyone, for the good of the common wheel. Yes, this should all sound very familiar with a lot of trends that are going on today. He talks about trends and that there is a trend in society towards centralization of government, towards concentration of wealth, towards unification of mechanized industry. Yes, that is what has been going on. Centralization of government? Yes, definitely. Concentration of wealth? Look at the world's top earners and most wealthiest people and how they have fared during COVID, not to mention the previous decade that we have been going through. What about unification of mechanized industry? Mergers and acquisitions, giant mega corporations becoming even more giant and mega. And so, yes, these things are happening. These trends are still in existence. Yes, he was right way back in the 20s. Now, when he talks about different societies and how things have changed, we went from having autocracy. This would be 
the kings, and the king is God-ordained, and they have power over man. And then we shift into democracy, where man has these natural rights over government. And he says that the political system has evolved, but we kept kind of the negatives of the former ones. We kept the force and control of centralized government and the cunning and magic of finance and capitalism, and they've meshed together to give us what we have today, which is not a very good position to be in, at least according to him. And we can look at this from our viewpoint now that I think makes it much more crystal clear than even when he was writing way back in the 20s, which is really cool the way that that works out, how spot on he was. He mentions how some of the issues that are going on today would be, and I say today, he was writing in the 20s, but uh, I will apply this to today because it fits so well. He talks about chance, and this would be trade and speculation, opportunity, recreation. These are things that are matters of chance. Then he talks about mystery, that finance is like religion. It's very mysterious. It's unknown. Or there are these complex systems. When Venn talks about magic and can you really understand how your technology works, it's the same idea of mystery. And he uses the word mystery here, just like Venn does. So again, a lot of ties here. And he talks about how these complex systems of finance are managed by cunning and mystery, not by science, which, of course, science is his ideal. It is much more objective in his mind. But he says that money is like magic. It has these magical qualities of eternal life, of reproduction, where money makes money. It's this weird thing where the future controls the present. You are financing the present goods with future savings. This is something that is a magical thing that's happening here. It's, it's mysterious using these unknown or complex systems of finance. You have the whole idea of credit, the idea of something from nothing. These are magical concepts. And he talks about that and how all of this comes to play. He talks about how all of this is ruled by chance. And I defined chance earlier. And with chance... You have this wealth and investment that is largely governed by chance, and you have these acts of God, these matters of chance that can create riches. They can make someone the wealthiest person in a society and someone else the poorest. And he says that, you know, this is not fair. He mentions earlier what I said about technocracy, where matters of chance need to be distributed to all. So obviously, by his definition of our economic and financial systems that are run by chance, by magic, by mystery, these need to change according to him. And so he sees that the rulers of these systems, that would be the takers, people driven by the will to take, the will to acquire, the will to hoard, however you want to frame that, these are the financiers. And so these are the people that are basically like the merchants. We've talked about the merchant class. And that is when, again, all of these things overlay onto each other. This is where my own framework of the age of economics comes into play. These are the people in charge, and they take from the makers, the commoners, in exchange for survival needs and to control production. Does that sound accurate? Where the merchants, the corporations, are the ones that are in control of the goods and materials, the food, everything that we need to survive. 
and they control the production of goods, of mechanized industry. Yes, that's exactly what is going on today. He mentions how the tool of measurement for the economy it doesn't make a lot of sense to him because this tool is money. But money is variable and unstable. It's built on magic. You have credit. You have fiat. It's not true money. It's not hard money. How can you have a tool of measurement, a set of measurement, that is not stable? That doesn't make sense. Imagine if your ruler or your tape measure has these varying lines that just keep moving around and they change in value. How in the world are you going to make anything happen? Well, that's what he says money is. And why would this unstable variable tool be used for measurement? Yet that is the measurement for our current economy. Just like these matters of chance are the ones that govern success in our current economy. It doesn't make sense to him. He talks about this magic aspect of money where it's like dream wealth. You have these stocks, these bonds, you have national debt. It's all credit. It's magic that's used to control real physical goods. It's the immaterial controlling the material. Again, does this resonate with you? Does this sound familiar? Yes, it definitely should. Now, there is one thing that I would say William Henry Smith left out. He does talk about how there are these core drives, and he talks about how there's this other drive, the will to know, and that would be the drive that rules this technocracy, this next age, and I would agree with him on all this, but there is another drive that he didn't mention and that I think deserves to be mentioned because as I get into the next season of my show and as we get into this interview with with Vin and we talk about these spiritual aspects, we're incorporating things like religion and the Bible, these types of things, and there is this drive, this will to serve. That is the drive that's talked about in the Bible, in the teachings of Jesus and the early church. It's this will to serve. Now, if you ask an objectivist, someone that follows maybe Ayn Rand, they would not be very happy with this part of the talk. But either way, I would say that this is a viable drive for people to have, and that while everyone has these other individual drives, you have the will to live, the will to take, the will to make, the will to master, and the will to know. Everybody has these drives to some extent, and every society is governed by all of these drives to an extent, but usually one will take dominance. And with this, these drives, to use uh, Smith's terminology, these drives need to be controlled without being controlled. To do this, we need an ideology, a national purpose. This is something that he talks about. And so if you overlay that onto this will to serve that he had not mentioned at all, that's something that I believe I came up with on my own, the Bible confirms these drives and their impacts. It teaches through story, through philosophy, that attempts to control, or whether it be individually or collectively, they're doomed to fail. We are taught to follow a drive that Smith left out, this will to serve. We are given an ideology, a purpose, both individually and collectively. 
and the strength to succeed in these goals. This is the idea of the kingdom of God. It is a kingdom that is driven by the will to serve. You have these base desires, but they are overall filtered through this will to serve versus having these base desires that are then governed by a group of technocrats that are led by the will to know, to discover. That is a different system than the idea of the kingdom of God. So you have the kingdom of man, the technocracy, the probably theocratic technocracy, and I'll get into that later. There are two theocratic technocracies. It is either the one that is laid out by the Church of Woke or the one that is laid out by the idea of the kingdom of God. There's a verse that comes to mind that kind of brings these things together. It's in Matthew 20, starting in verse 25. It says, But Jesus called them and said, You know that among the Gentiles, those who are supposed to rule them become tyrants, and their superiors become dictators. Among you, it must not be like that. On the contrary, whoever among you wants to be a leader must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that's the idea that Jesus is preaching, is that if you really want to be a leader, then you need to serve people. You need to be driven by this will to serve. That's the whole premise behind the idea of the kingdom of God. And on the other hand, in the secular world, if you want to be a leader, then you rule it over them. You lord it over them. You become a tyrant or a dictator. These are different translations and different uh, places in the Gospels where this message is relayed. But that's, that's the idea that if you are not governed by this will to serve, which is another option, if instead you are driven by the more base desires, whichever ones those may be, then leadership... And we are talking about on the level of leading men kind of a thing. If that is the case, then your leadership will turn into some sort of dictatorship or being some sort of a tyrant and lording it over people. That is the alternative. So it's one or the other. Either your base desires are filtered through the will to serve or your base desires are filtered through maybe the will to know, and you are trying to learn more, to know more, to gain more knowledge, collect more data, get more inputs in order to serve all of your base desires. Or you are filtering those things through love, through the will to serve, by wanting to take care of other people, help other people, build relationships, these kinds of things. Since we're tying in some biblical concepts and the Bible itself, I think that it is worth looking into a biblical pattern as well that's very similar to these others that I've been covering and laying out here. So the idea is that there is this pattern throughout the Bible going through the different stories from the Old Testament to the New where you have a pattern that is structured this way. You have chaos, then you have an aspect of water that came into play, then you have the Spirit of God coming in, then you have God speaking directly, and then you have a phase of temptation 
and then the pattern repeats itself. And that happens really just over and over and over again. But this can be broken up into sections that do overlay onto the patterns that I've already been talking about and that I will continue to be talking about. And so I'm going to kind of go over at least how I've laid that out, how that applies, and how it ties in. But not only that, also the Sermon on the Mount specifically, Jesus talks about a lot of the same concepts. And in season three, I will be getting into that. That will be part of season three at some point. We'll be talking about those concepts, those teachings, the New Testament church, that kind of stuff, using them as an example. And so it is worth touching on how these different aspects of this pattern are referred to in the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, because each one of these are covered. And so I can relate kind of how those tie in as well. So to begin with, we would start off where you would think we would start off, at the beginning. And this would be the historical time period of what I'm framing as the age of survival. And for the biblical pattern, this would be the time period from creation to the flood. So you have this idea of chaos whenever the earth was void and just water. So in the biblical account, that's how things uh, roughly begin. Now there is a catch there is what's called the gap theory, where some people think that the first phrase of God created in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it says, now the earth was empty and void. And so that space between where obviously it was a broad statement about the very beginning of time, and then it's looking at one specific period of time, some people believe that there is this gap in between that could have been a very long gap. A lot could have happened. Maybe that was the time when you had the fall of the angels. Maybe that was the time of the dinosaurs. You know, lots of different things that can be filled in into that gap theory. And there's the idea that God doesn't create anything that is in a state of chaos or a state of being void. And so there there are definite arguments to back that up. But uh, that's kind of beside the point here. The point is that once we get the Genesis account of creation really getting going, once we have that now the earth was void, this would be roughly this idea of chaos. Basically, there's nothing structured really going on at this time period. And so that would be this time period of chaos and part of the void. Then we hear that water covered the surface of the earth, that the earth was nothing but a whole covering of water. It's all about water. And this is a very materialistic view of this uh, first section of the pattern as well. And then you have the spirit. It says the spirit of God hovered over the waters. And so you have the spirit coming into play. Then you have creation being established. And how does it get established? Well, God speaks. And that is the next part of this pattern here. And then in the end, after creation is established, what's the very next thing that happens? You have the temptation of Adam and Eve. And so that's this pattern that plays out the chaos, water, spirit, God speaking, and temptation. And this really plays out over and over again. And I'll at least give, I guess, the four or five examples that cover the ages of man that that I am covering as well. And so the temptation of Adam and Eve 
also focus on the base desires of man, just like the Age of Survival covers the base desires of man. If you look into the Book of Enoch, it provides a more detailed glimpse of how society may have been at the time. The Bible is pretty brief about this period between creation and the flood. The Book of Enoch goes into a little more detail on that, and again, it's debated as to how accurate that is, but it does correspond very well, and there's definitely a lot of references in the official canon of the Bible to the Book of Enoch, so it's at least worth looking into. But either way, the point is just that according to multiple sources and according to the idea we get even just from the Genesis account, it seems like there is a lot of fighting over resources. There's the implementation of tools and other advancements from a technological perspective. And again, especially the Book of Enoch talks specifically about this and how this happens. And so all of this stuff really fits the idea of the age of survival really well. And so in this age and in the biblical accounts of creation and early civilization, God not only creates life and therefore the ability to survive, but also provides tangibly for survival in the form of the plants that he created on earth for the humans. There was all of this food that they could eat. And so again, this is covering the base desires. They were completely satisfied and uncorrupted in the original Bible story, the creation account. The technologies of tools and agriculture were not really needed and nor was the use of force necessary at the beginning. These only arise as a result of man's break with God. So all of these aspects either directly correspond with the age of survival, or if you look specifically about the creation account, it really leads us right into this age of survival. Now, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus, more of the New Testament framework, we have murder, violence, anger, Uh, These are some of the first topics that Jesus brings up in the Sermon on the Mount. This is followed by a discourse on lust. These are two of the most influential base desires of man, anger and lust. And again, with anger, that's murder, violence, all these kinds of things. So he also later gets a bit into more philosophical aspects when talking about worrying. He says not to worry about what to wear, what to eat. And both of these appeal to, again, our more base desires, things like shelter, clothing, food, these kinds of things. And just because something is a base desire, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a bad desire. Uh, For example, lusting for your spouse or eating a healthy meal that you enjoy or being angry at the evils that someone is committing or wearing clothes for the sake of modesty and protection. Those are all very healthy ways of expressing these desires. The Age of Survival gives many examples of these desires not being handled in a proper way. So again, initially, It is this uncorrupted version of the base desires. That is the biblical account. And then those things get corrupted. That should sound familiar, talking about how, you know, things over time get corrupted and those corrupted aspects get used in the next age. And yes, that pattern holds true in the biblical pattern as well, just like all of these are. That's kind of my whole point with all this. They all flow together so well. 
The next time period that is covered in this biblical pattern would be the time after the flood, but before Moses. So this would start off with Noah and go all the way up to the Israelites being slaves in Egypt. For the characteristics that we start off with, starting with chaos, you have the chaos of society before the flood. Everything is full of violence and, again, these base desires being corrupted. That's the state of chaos. You have water coming into play when it floods the entire earth. Pretty obvious. Then you have the spirit coming into play in two similar ways that are a little more allegorical, but I I think it fits the best to say that the wind that dries up the earth from the flood, the word for wind is the same word for spirit when you look at the original Hebrew. And so there's that aspect, but also the symbol of the dove. Uh, Noah sends out a dove to see if there is land around, because obviously if a bird finds land, then they might pick a leaf, pick a berry, and come back. If they don't come back at all, there's probably enough land that they think it's okay and they can survive out there. Whereas if there's just water around and there's barely anything or maybe a tiny bit of land, then the bird's just going to come right back to the boat. And so that was kind of his test that he used. But the symbolism of the dove representing the spirit is something that is also carried forth in the New Testament, where when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended down like a dove. And this symbolism is used over and over again. So whether it's wind, the ruach, which would be the Hebrew word for wind or spirit, or whether it's the dove metaphor here, either one reference at least the spirit of God. Then you have God speaking. And that would be the Noahide covenant, where God tells Noah, these are the things that you need to do, and this is the covenant that I will make with you. So you have God speaking. Then the final aspect is temptation. And you could either say that that would be Noah's son Shem being tempted when he saw his father naked in his tent. And if you know the story, there's no really real point in getting into it in this context. But it's either that, or probably a more fitting example would be the temptation at the Tower of Babel. This is where people were tempted to go against God's commands to be be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and also this temptation to be like God, and that was kind of one of the things that they were doing at that time period. So with this time, you see that Noah's sons founded their own tribes, and there are biblical accountings of the cities that they built as they spread throughout the land. And again, coming from the previous age, the time of survival, I had said in my previous framework that that was the time when societies were organized around tribes. Yes, and we see that coming into play and that being corrupted in this next age. The biblical pattern ended with the Tower of Babel, where these tribes of people began to come together to centralize into a single entity with the intent of reaching the heavens. And so, again, this idea of the next age, the age of religion, is the age of cities really coming into play and using religion, spiritual goals as a way to unify a people group. This is what's going on at the Tower of Babel. There's also a biblical version of the corruption of human strength in the act of coming together to combine their labor and strength against God as they are building this tower to the heavens. And again, that's a corrupted version of the method of the age of survival, the method of 
brute force or strength being used in this current age. Again, you see this happening over and over. All these things overlay together. And so you also see that there's a shift that happens as we go from an age of cities run largely by religious bureaucracies to the unification and centralization of entire regions in the next age. That will be the age of empires that's coming up. Now, there was actually a design that God set up in the biblical account for how things should have gone. His ways provided the ability for people to be organized and civilized without using force or cunning. There was no need for centralized bureaucracies to rule the cities. It would have been God that would have been the ruler, and all under him should have focused on serving him and serving each other. Again, this will to serve, as I've talked about before. So instead, the ruling class focused on making new religious systems for their own selfish benefit and using these systems to establish ruling governments that operated far from God. God's plan, definitely. And Jesus addresses these things. He addresses the will to make, which is the ruling drive of this age of religion. And this will to make or construct is within the framework of the law of Moses, which is a very material, structured set of rules that were created in order to create, to make, to construct a specific type of society under a specific governance system. And so that's the deal here. And Jesus is laying out more of a modern framework for interpreting the law of Moses. He uses cunning in a positive way to get to the deeper meaning of the law. He explains how even pious Judaism is a corruption of the handed down religion. He criticizes the religious bureaucracy of the time and specifically the use of religion as a tool for social standing, profit, and control. So the next age would then be the age of empire. And this would be, from a biblical standpoint, the time period between post-Moses through, let's say, Jesus's life. And this would include the founding of an expansion of Israel, as well as the Babylonian, Assyrian, Roman, and other large empires of the time. So as far as the pattern starting with chaos is concerned, the aspect of chaos might be Moses escaping Egypt, the Israelites escaping out of their bondage of Egypt. That would be a state of chaos. The water coming into play would, I would think fairly obviously, be the parting of the Red Sea as they pass through that water and head into their, well, somewhat freedom. And then the aspect of the spirit the spirit would be represented by the physical manifestations that followed the Israelites, whether it was a pillar of fire or a cloud or wind. All of these things are referenced here. There was a wind that dried up when the Red Sea was parted. There is this pillar of fire and a cloud that follow them and hide them from the Egyptians that are coming. Uh, all of these would be in reference to the spirit, the aspect of God interacting within the human world here and helping the Israelites as they are escaping. The aspect of God speaking directly would be the law that was given at Mount Sinai. This would be Mosaic law. This uh, is supposed to have come directly from God to Moses, so definitely a clear representation of God speaking. And then the temptation would be the whole wilderness journey. The Israelites are tempted over and over and over again, and the they really mirror 
the temptations of Jesus. And so uh, I might touch on that later, but uh, this would be the aspect of temptation. And obviously they fail over and over, just like everybody else has failed. Every time we reach this stage of temptation, there is always failure. We also see the corruption of religion highlighted in this biblical pattern with this concept taking up much of Jesus's teaching. As I mentioned just prior to this, that was a heavy focus of his. And again, it's the aspect of the previous age being corrupted and used in a corrupted form in the current age. And there will be more on this later in this episode uh, away from the biblical pattern examples. I'll get into what Vin and I referenced talking about some other stuff related to that. But for now, I just want to highlight that this is an aspect, the corruption of the previous used in the current. So Jesus frequently elaborates on the importance of one's intentions and methods. This is in response to the corrupted, cunning nature of humanity. Again, that aspect of the previous age of cunning to scheme, manipulate, and use a corrupted version of religion to one's own benefit. The church following him is simply many individuals with a common religion, just like an empire. It's made up of many ethnic groups, cultures, and religions, all under a common head. The individualistic nature of the end of this cycle, which would be Jesus's temptation in the desert, is indicative of this shift to an individualistic perspective of both the secular and Christian realms in the next age that we're getting into the age of economics. As God elected a specific people group, that would be Israel, and established them as a set-apart population, he gave them a way to operate an empire morally. Mosaic law did not use force and cunning to control the nation, but rather gave guidelines for the individuals to follow that upheld everyone's individual rights. The only time punishment and the judicial system were used were when an individual's rights were actually violated. There was no such thing as a crime against the state. There was really no state. That's another aspect here. There was no centralized government or organized standing army. There was no mandatory taxation. This was a decentralized, free, and voluntary society. If someone didn't want to be a part of it, they could leave. If they wanted to join and follow the God of Israel, they could. This was an alternative alternative structure to those used by other empires of this age. So again, we see this difference between the way the biblical structure is laid out in this time period and what was going on in the secular world. So Jesus focused on these applications of God's law as well. Others are free to make their own decisions, right or wrong, and we are only to judge those who voluntarily choose to join the kingdom of God and commit to submission to its laws. We have no call to conquer, but to invite. We are not to hate and fight our enemies as worldly empires do. We are to show love to them. The corruption of religion is our fight, not the voluntary perversion of man. So again, this age of empire is the age that's dominated by the will to master or to control. The examples of empires that I use that are in the Bible, the Assyrian, the Babylonian, all of these empires, the Israelite empire, if you want to call it that, all of these are examples of that being used in a worldly or secular way. And that's the way that is used in basically all of these other historical patterns and social cycle theories that I've discussed. But the difference is that as Jesus lays it out for the church and for his true followers, and as is laid out in the law of Moses, which is more what we're focused on here, here, 
This is supposed to be the will to master control exercised over the individual themselves, or maybe extended out to their family, but not over an entire society by the people in charge of that society. It's not an empire that's supposed to take over and indefinitely expand. You could argue that the nation of Israel was supposed to do this. They were supposed to go into the land of Canaan and expand, but there were limits on that expansion. There was a certain area, a certain region, a certain set of territories that they were to take over, and that is it. They weren't to be an ever-expanding empire. And not only that, they were to give terms of peace before they took over a city. And so even though, and I'm not going to get into this, but even though there are some pretty harsh actions taken when they would defeat a people group, they were supposed to give terms of peace beforehand, and the people were supposed to be allowed to leave. So even as the nation of Israel ended up looking more and more like these other empires. Instead of following the law of Moses, they demanded to have a king set up over them to rule over them, just like the other nations. They wanted to be just like the other nations, and, you know, we see how that went for them. But the original intent here, if we're actually looking at what the Bible is saying that God wants society be, to be structured as, that would be Mosaic Law, at least in this time for this specific people group. And Mosaic Law did not set it up to be anything like the other empires of the day. So the next age would be the age of economics, the age we were just in or are still in now. For the pattern that begins with chaos, we can look at the ministry of of Jesus himself. The aspect of chaos would be Israel, who is subjugated by Rome and the corruption with religion in that time period within Judaism. That would be the chaos aspect. The aspect of water covering or cleansing would be the baptism of Jesus. And when he is baptized, the spirit is said to de have descended like a dove. And so you have this aspect of the spirit coming as well. And then you immediately have God speaking and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so the final aspect of this is temptation. And that happens immediately following this, where Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by the adversary, by the tempter, by Satan. And when this happens, this is where things change. And this is foreshadowing a change that comes up in the next age. And so at this point, Jesus does not fail the temptations like Israel did when they went into the wilderness or like humanity did at the Tower of Babel, or like Adam and Eve did back in the Garden of Eden. This cycle always ends in temptation and always ends in failure. But here, Jesus actually succeeds. He does not give in to temptation. So here is a break. And we'll see that in the next age where you have these two separate kingdoms that are running in parallel with one another. You have this break between one direction and another. And this would be in this pattern, at least because Jesus did not fail this temptation. He broke the cycle. And so the next age is different, at least in some degree. And we'll get into that in the next age. And so the biblical parallel would be the church. This would be the time period post-Jesus and into the New Testament church years. The corporate church has had many debates over power, money, and wealth, these things that dominate the age of economics. There are also strong views of what the economic perspective of a believer should be. 
So with the secular world focusing so much on economic factors, the Christian world is forced to wrestle with these issues as well. They are living in the same age. Christians are governed by biblical standards, though, not political or economic. There is a clear picture here of the corruption of the ideology of empire within this age, as well as the church taking a fairly imperial role for a substantial period of time. This is part of the corruption of the church as well. And again, it mirrors the corruption of what dominated the previous age, just like this pattern continually happens. The battle against this is fought largely through theological study and debate, foreshadowing the next age to come. And so with this, that would be something like the Reformation with Martin Luther and all these debates that were going on. So Jesus brings up money many times in his teachings as well. The passage on the impossibility of having two masters, both God and money, is one of the most recognized from the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus also discusses the will to take in many other ways. There is a whole section of what to do if someone takes things from you. Making an oath could also be viewed as taking someone's trust. If you have previously earned their trust, then there is no need for an oath. An oath is only necessary as a method of attaining someone's trust, acquiring it, and storing it up in advance. One can then profit off of this capital or credit that they have attained, and this obviously has many parallels to the capitalist mindset and to some of the things that William Henry Smith talked about with the magic of credit and the capitalist system, these types of things. So that would then take us into the next age, the age we are heading into, shifting into, or are in already, however you want to look at that. And the biblical parallel for this would be the idea of the kingdom of God. And we start to see a divide coming into play here. So going back to the chaos, water, spirit, God speaking and temptation pattern that I have already established here, that would play out in this way. We would have the church in a state of chaos, and that would be the issue there. And we would have water coming into play through the baptism of the individual. As individuals become born-again Christians within the church, there is this aspect of baptism and water covering them and washing them clean, so to say. Then the Spirit coming into play would be that then you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit talks with you. You have this ability to have things revealed to you, to have extra discernment and things of this nature through the spirit that you now have access to that they didn't in previous ages, at least not in the same way. Then you also have God speaking in the sense that we have the actual scriptures, the entire word of God. Some of that is actually supposed to be directly from God, but much of it is through prophets and through revelations through other people. And we're not going to get into the validity of the accuracy of the Bible right here, but uh, that is the point here, and that is the parallel to God speaking. Then the temptation now becomes the temptation of the individual. We are tempted into entering into, let's say, the church of woke, into modern society, into the corruptions of the secular, cultural, pop Christian church. This is the temptation that we then face. So with this biblical parallel of the kingdom of God, this can be viewed either as the Christian ideal operating parallel to the modern secular world or the new heaven and the new earth, uh, such as the way people view the end times. And so the difference in this segment is that 
the comparisons are now broken. There is supposed to be no corruption within the kingdom of God and no direct secular example of this structure. The kingdom is only a corruption of the previous ages in the sense of being the opposite of the secular drives and actions that were behind all the other secular ages. So it's a corruption of the way they were used, yes, but it is more of a pure version of that use, really what they ideally should have been. So if you look at the secular system as a base for comparison, then yes, the kingdom of God is a corruption of that system, but in a positive sense. This is a new age running in parallel or in place of the age of science. The governing drive is the will to serve. Again, I have mentioned that prior that there is this new will that I am adding in, and this is the place where I am adding it right here. And so this would be in contrast to what William Henry Smith says, that the will to know is what should govern the next age. That would be the technocracy, the age of science. And so what I am saying is that now you have two kingdoms running in parallel at the same time, the kingdom of God, which is governed by the will to serve, and the kingdom of man, the church of woke, the age of science science, the technocracy that is governed by the will to know. And all the other drives are now filtered through this drive, the will to serve in the kingdom of God, whereas the others are filtered through the will to know, the collection of data, the running of algorithms, the changing the material world, these types of things. How do we do that? That is what governs the secular world, the church of woke. And so with the Sermon on the Mount, it is heavily laden with references to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That's one of the main subjects. Jesus's entire message, and by his own account, God's law in its entirety, can be summed up in the command to love. Love God and love your fellow man. This is shown through providing basic needs, sharing the gospel, being a servant, sharing your wealth, being hospitable, explaining God's teachings, on and on and on. All of this is service. This is serving. This is love. This is how the will to serve or to love governs the other drives we all have as human beings. Jesus also points out the difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God by highlighting what drives are followed within both. In the former, the base desires rule over others and or they better one's own positions, man over man. In the latter, the will to serve, it is God reigning over man and man serving man. I want to read a few quotes here that are pretty relevant. One section of verses that's pretty brief, and then a few from the histories of Edward Gibbon. So the verses would be from Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 25. And it's speaking of Jesus, who is talking and teaching at this point. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, 
And again, it's all this idea of the will to serve and the idea of the kingdom that he is then assigning to them. That becomes the idea of the church or the true church, the kingdom of God, however you want to look at that. And so that's what's being discussed there. Now, getting into the historian Edward Gibbon, he commented about this idea of Christians being a part of a kingdom within a kingdom. And he did this multiple times. There's two in particular that I'll pull out here. So again, I mentioned how with this pattern, the aspect of chaos would be the corruption of the church itself. And so this kind of highlights that because with the early Christians, this was a much more pronounced difference than it is today, the difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, and it was seen very easily. So Gibbon said that one of the reasons for the spread of early Christianity was this, quote, the union and discipline of the Christian Republic, which formed an independent and increasing state in the heart of the Roman Empire. So again, this idea of a kingdom within a kingdom, a republic, it's independent, and it's within the heart of the Roman Empire. And then the next quote is something else he says in relation to this, quote, The Christians, it was charged by Galerius, renouncing the gods and institutions of Rome, had constituted a distinct republic. And both of those come from the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. One's from volume one, one's from volume two. But he again talks about this aspect of a kingdom within a kingdom, the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And this is one of the aspects that I am really trying to bring out. And so uh, I, I hope this does uh, create a good framework and kind of lay out a lot of these aspects and parallels without coming across as me preaching a sermon. That's not what I'm trying to do. I am trying to lay out other historical cycles and patterns and lay out how these are all intertwined and work together. And this one comes from a religious standpoint, yes, but I don't want you to feel like I am just trying to preach a sermon here. There is much more to this. The next theory that I do want to mention as well would be that of Sorokin. Now, this is one that I do not have the time or ability to give the justice that it deserves, so I would recommend that you check it out yourself. The author is Petirim Sorokin, and that would be P-I-T-I-R-I-M. Sorokin. I don't know exactly how you pronounce that. He was a Russian sociologist, and the main book that covers all of this stuff would be The Crisis of Our Age, which he wrote, I believe, in the 40s. I think it was published in 46, if I remember right. I looked at it recently. But he lays out this idea of how societies and cultures go through these cycles between a sensate cycle and an ideational cycle. And then in between, you have this idealistic cycle, which is the mix between the two. And this is something that Vin and I discussed briefly, and he mentioned how that was very similar to the mystical material. And in fact, that's actually what Sorokin even says, is that it is something where you have a materialistic order that is nearing exhaustion, and you have this transformation into a more mystical or spiritual culture. It's just really helpful 
in one way because he uses such similar vocabulary. So as we talk about these things related to the dim age and these shifts between the material and immaterial, this is exactly what he was talking about. And he lays out what this means in this specific book. It's kind of a shorter version of his other work and really compiles it all together to this one topic of a crisis. And that's that's what he sees. He sees us coming into this period of crisis, just like the fourth turning. It's, it's that same idea that that is the age we are in, and it is an age that is shifting from the material, from the sensate, into the ideational. And he covers like fine arts and the arts in general and how these things are shifting within the arts. He covers what he calls the system of truth, which would be science, philosophy, and religion, and how each one of these things are changing. He talks about law and ethics. He talks about the family and how things are getting much more contractual. The rise of contractualism in modern society is the title of one of the chapters here and talks about family, government, economic organization, liberty, and international relations. And then gets in into criminality, war, revolution, mental illness, all kinds of stuff. And and he really relates how shifts that are going on in society, and again, he's writing in the 40s, so this was a little while ago, but calling out how in all these different areas of society and in our culture, we are seeing these shifts. And looking back at what he wrote, it's a lot like looking at William Henry Smith and the things he wrote. It really applies extremely well to our day. And as Vin mentions multiple times, the future determines the past. And he talks about how if something really holds its weight over time and proves to be correct over time, then that increases its value and validity back when it was written in the past. And so that's something that I think is very worthwhile to consider, that if these theories and frameworks that were developed decades ago were able to fairly accurately predict what was going to happen and actually are able to describe what is going on right now, and we are seeing it in real time, then these things have a lot of weight. They have a lot of value, a lot of merit, and it is worth looking into. With Sorokin, he specifically talks about how in the ideational phase, it is focused on faith, on revelation, on mystery. He says that it's a time when people seek the invisible and the absolute instead of focusing on the sensate and pleasing their senses and doing things that feel good, that are very materialistic, focused on material things and having material goals and very structured systems and these types of things. And so he, he calls out a lot of stuff that is really happening now. He doesn't, as far as I can tell and remember, he doesn't actually call out like transgenderism and these types of things, but he does specifically talk about how even biology, he talks about how that was looked at from a very material standpoint where things were very set in stone, they were very structured, and that they're changing now and things are getting a lot more abstract. And same with philosophy. I don't think he talks about like post-structuralism and all this, um, because as far as I know, that wasn't a thing back in the 40s. But he basically predicts it as he talks about the way philosophy is changing and becoming, again, more immaterial and more abstract and things like this. So 
it's just really, really helpful for that specific aspect of what Vin and I were talking about, about these, this cycle between the material and immaterial, which I think might be one of the most important aspects of looking at what's going on. The, the book specifically, The Crisis of Our Age by Sorokin, would be one I would highly, highly recommend for digging more into that specific aspect. So if that's something you're interested in, definitely check that out. Now I want to take a brief break away from these social cycle theories and historical cycles, and we'll get actually phase right back into it in just a minute, because in the next part of the interview, we kind of got out of that. And there's one thing that he said specifically, I think he was quoting somebody else, but talking about how reality is defined by language and is the universe nothing but being made up out of language. And he talks about these types of things multiple times about reality being defined by the immaterial. And that's something that's worth a look because reality is defined by language. We can't describe reality in any other way than to use language to describe it. And so we can't describe the material in any other way but then to use the immaterial to express those ideas, to even think those ideas, to have those concepts. Those concepts that we have to help us understand the material in and of themselves are immaterial. They have to be. They're thoughts. And so this is true. And so in a sense... Reality is defined by language, but it is more in the sense of a narrative and of rhetoric and how you describe it, how you consider it, and how you contemplate these things and understand these things. That part is true, but I think it is also important to point out the fact that reality in the material world doesn't necessarily change because you perceive it differently, because you change it differently through language or through the immaterial or through your perception. Just because people perceive things differently, it doesn't make the things themselves different. It just makes them perceived as being different. And so there is a distinction there that is worth making. It might seem like there's not really much there and it doesn't really matter and it's just a matter of semantics, but it really can matter depending on how you are using that. And that's something that will come up later on in either this commentary or the next section of the interview, I don't remember, but these types of things come up multiple times in the interview and that's something that is worth bringing out because in a sense... Immaterial things, let's say language, let's say concepts, they don't change reality. They only change the perception of reality. But the issue is that once you change the perception of reality for a large population of people, it changes their actions and how they treat the said thing and how they interact with the material world. And once they are interacting with it, and their actions have changed in a way that is different than before because their perception has changed, because the language, the immaterial conceptualization of what reality is has changed, once that happens, then it actually does change our shared reality. So the gender thing is one that is a, a perfect example, and an easy example, I would say. And so 
previously in the material age, uh, it was very simple. Biology was pretty simple when it comes to gender. If you're born with certain parts, then you're a man. If you're born with other parts, then you're a woman. And that was pretty simple. The difference between male and female is biological. It's a very structured, materialistic view of how things work, of describing the material, describing reality. That is reality. Uh, it was reality, maybe we should say. And so getting into the more immaterial view of things, the more mystical or ideational view, gender is no longer determined by the parts that a person has, their biological aspects or the chromosomes that they do or don't have. That is not what determines gender anymore. Now gender is something that is determined by someone's perception it's determined by concepts in people's mind, by morality that people have come up with, by language in the way that it is described and defined. That turns into what gender is, what it means to be a man and a woman. But at first, that does not actually change the fact that when someone is born, they have certain chromosomes and they have certain body parts and biologically they are either male or female. That is still the reality. It might be described differently. It might be viewed and perceived or start to become to be perceived differently, but reality is still the same. Now, the key here is that as perception changes and it changes within a whole society and things get to be to the point where the majority of society is viewing things through this immaterial framework and they are viewing gender as something that is fluid, that can be changed, that's defined by your perceptions and not by your biology. Well, we also at the same time have technology catching up to that as well. And we are getting to the point where now you can change somebody's biology. You can change the balance of hormones within their body. You can change how they look. You can change all of these things to the point to where because sex and gender are things that are considered, the perception of them is that they are immaterial and that it's all about how they are perceived by the individual. It's all about the free choice of the individual because that is the reality of how people perceive them then as technology is catching up to being able to change the material to fit the immaterial, then all of a sudden that actually becomes a reality. It becomes the reality that people are the gender that they choose to be, even from a biological standpoint. And so you actually do have a case in the end where language actually does define reality and change reality. The immaterial changes the material. And so at first, that's not really the case because reality still is re reality. The material is still the material. But again, as perception changes and as that changes people's actions, and as the shift comes to where we change the material to fit the immaterial, in the immaterial view, the conception, the perception has already shifted and changed, then all of a sudden, reality is being changed by those same perceptions that were just a perception of a different reality. And, you know, it's kind of interesting there, and you might get a little turned around there, but I think hopefully you should see what I am saying there. So on one hand, we should be careful not to think that reality is immaterial and that the way we perceive and describe things actually changes the way things really are. But on the other hand, 
as that actually sets in, whether it's true or not, and I'm saying at first it is not true, but as it becomes perceived as true, then it actually does truly change the material and then becomes true. And so it's this really interesting thing, but but to see the difference there actually is pretty important because we do have to realize that reality, the material world, is the material world. And just because it's perceived differently doesn't change that. But on the other hand, we do always have to keep in mind that that may not remain the case if the perception of it does change and that takes hold and that takes root and that becomes a societal perception. Now, shortly after this, Venn talked about how the university, the idea of the university is the realm of the thinker class. And that would be the same as the priest class, the intellectual class. That is what Venn was calling the unproductive class, that the only way they're able to do what they can do is because of the merchant class. And so therefore, academia is beholden to the merchants. And he described that pretty well. I think we can see that. And some other examples of that playing out would be something like why you go to college and get a degree. Is it to learn and to truly educate yourself or is it to get a job? Where are your loyalties? Where are your goals? Is it with the merchant class or is it with the thinker class? And I would say it's with the merchant class. The merchant class is the one that is dominating your goals and the way that you are directing your life when you choose to go to college. Now, this is the same when you look at knowledge versus skill. Are you going to school in order to learn a certain skill to do a job, or are you going to school in order to gain knowledge and to learn things? Well, Again, it is more about gaining the skill so you can get the job than it is about actually truly learning and educating yourself. And so the thinker class, the intellectual class, is not actually passing along this intellectual inheritance. That's not what's going on. They're not truly educating people, but instead they are basically filing people into this kind of corporate assembly line and they are creating good workers of different types. They are creating good factory workers, good people that follow orders and that follow what the management tells them. They create good managers. They create good business owners. They create people to fill the roles that need to be filled by the merchant class. And so they are providing that for the merchants. They are beholden to the merchants from that standpoint as well. When you look at professors at prestigious universities, oftentimes they spend just as much time, if not more, working on publishing papers and doing research and doing things that make the university look good and look more prestigious. They spend more time doing this than focusing on actually teaching students. But that should be their main job is to teach students. That's really is their job. But there is this higher focus on research. People call them research universities. And that's more what they are focused on than actually passing along the knowledge and the education. And so, again, this is all for the benefit of the merchant class. The merchant class is the only reason they are able to do this because they're not really providing a valuable good or a service to a person or to the students. They are instead following their own intellectual pursuits 
but the fruits of those intellectual pursuits are then reaped by the merchant class, the corporations, because the results of all these research papers and all these theories that they come out with are then used by corporations and by the merchant class in order to increase their profits, in order to come up with new designs for new things. You have uh, different universities that have departments that run experimental technologies and experimental scientific research. And all of this is typically, again, paid for by the merchant class, by donations, or by governments. And a government would fit into this same concept of being an unproductive class, more in line with the with, I hate to say it, with the thinker class, with the intellectual class. I really hate to call uh, politicians and the government departments that, but uh, that's, that's kind of the way it is in this framework. That's what it is. And so, again, it's still the universities, the academic class is beholden to the merchant class. And when you look back at my framework of the ages of man, the age we are in now is the age of the merchant, the age of economics. And if you look at the age before this, the age prior was the age of empires. And this was the age of the intellectual class, of the priestly class, or of the academic world, whatever you want to call it, the intellectual class, that was their age. And so when we see that in the next age, in the age of economics, you see kind of a corrupted, bastardized, unproductive version of the class that used to run things in the age before, that is one of these cycles that carries through. And that's something that Venn pointed out here is that we have this corruption and the fact that things are corrupting are part of that cycle. Even when you look at the cycle of empires, that's the way it is. An empire grows. It first starts off fairly decentralized, fairly small. And as it starts to grow, it usually is something that has a relatively small bureaucracy. It is having to fight to keep what it has and to gain more. So it's basically kept on its toes, so to say. And research shows that dictatorships and monarchies and ruling structures of this type are usually much more friendly to their citizenry when they are at this point of always being on the edge of crisis, always having to fight, always having to battle, always in the middle of a struggle of some kind, they're usually doing better for their population when they are in that state than when things are perfectly calm and peaceful and they've reached kind of the peak, then that's when they usually become decadent and corrupt. And that's how empires work. As they start to gain more territory, take over more people, then they have less threats. Their bureaucracy Democracy necessarily gets bigger because the empire gets bigger. You have a growth in this unproductive class to fill these roles of managing the society. You necessarily have to become a little more universal in your laws and in your regulations so that you can have the same rules apply no matter where you are in the empire. And that just makes sense. It's much more efficient. It's much more effective. But as these things start to take hold within the empire, the empire is hitting its peak, these things start to corrupt and they start to become decadent. And as this happens, it leads to the fall of the said empire or civilization or whatever you're looking at. And that's part of this cycle of empires, cycle of civilizations. They go through these phases and corruption 
is necessarily a part of this. There was an aspect that Vin talked about, about capitalism and how merchants are earning their profits and how that's becoming corrupted. And that is true. In this age of economics, it's run by capitalism. That's probably the main feature, the main economic system that has been used in this age. And the idea is that you use capital, you invest it into solving problems and earning a profit. That's the investment. And then you reap the rewards. You earn those profits because you have provided a good or service at a good price of a good enough quality that people, the market, they're interested in buying said thing. And so that's just the way it works. That's how successful capitalism works. That's what capitalism is. And you just repeat that process. You use those profits and you take that capital, you invest it into solving another problem and so on and so forth. But the problem is we are in this corrupted form where corporations are creating problems and manipulating consumer demand. They are using government regulation to further influence, and this is how they are getting their profits. Governments are using this same format too, but we are sticking to the merchant class right now because they are the ones that are ultimately in charge of this current age of economics. And so what happens is instead of a company solving a problem for a good price and of a good quality so that the market wants it and buys it, and then the company makes profits and reinvests the capital and so on and so forth. Instead of that, they are creating their own problems to solve. They are creating the demand that didn't exist before because marketing, propaganda, it's the same thing, because propaganda, mass psychology has reached a level where they can do this. They can influence the demand. They can turn a whole society into a consuming society. When you think about how the previous age was very sensate, very materialistic, it's not very hard to get those people to be very focused on materialism. And that just kind of makes sense. But as this happens, and as that starts to hit its peak, it starts to corrupt. And again, that's what we're talking about is this corruption that that really starts to set in, and that is part of the shift. And Vin was saying that's one of the key things about shifting from one age to the next, from one cycle to the next, is this aspect of corruption as as one class or system corrupts, it necessarily leads to the beginning or the dominance of another one. But it's not like these different classes and these different aspects just disappear, like they, the merchants only exist in the age of economics. No, they existed before and they'll exist after. We're talking about the dominance. And it's just like, it's, it's the same thing with the material versus the immaterial. It's not that materialism just totally disappears. No, it's just that the immaterial becomes more dominant and vice versa. It's not that religions disappear in a sensate age. No, they're actually alive and well. But that is not true religion, at least. True spirituality is not going to dominate that society, that culture, in a sensate, in a materialistic age. And so that's how these things work. Now I want to get back to the historical cycles and get back to my own framework that I've made to kind of really lay this out how this works. I'm going to go through each one of the ages. I'm not going to go through all the different aspects, but I'm going to go through the ones that should really stand out to you 
based on the things that I have gone over, everything from when I talked about William Henry Smith and the will to live, the will to make, the will to control, and so on. And when we also look at this aspect of the corruption of one age or one class that leads to the next and how it still exists, but it's in a corrupted form, I kind of want to draw that out a little bit more. And I think you'll be able to see that a little better if I go from one to the next to the next, specifically highlighting these aspects. So if you look at the beginning, the first age, the age of survival, this is the age that's driven primarily by the will to live. That's the goal in this age. This includes the more base desires of humanity, both good and bad, and the overall goal for society, for the normal population at this time, would be to provide for these types of desires. This would be life, food, sex, drink, violence, shelter, all of these types of things that are based on the most base aspects of human will and human desire. The dominant method, you know, if you remember back with William Henry Smith, he talked about the methods of force and cunning and skill. The dominant method in the age of survival is force. And society is largely organized in a tribal fashion where each tribe uses force against others and against nature in order to secure their survival and the base desires of its people. That's what's going on here. And as this happens, you have new technologies that become prominent in order to really help this age and these aspects of this age become dominant. And the technologies would be tools and agriculture. These things are technologies that help to evolve society, and they are dominant in this age. Now, the next age would be the age of religion. This age is dominated by the will to make. This relates to man's desire to construct, to build, to create the brute force method that is dominant in the previous age, that method of force, is superseded by cunning. Cunning is the main method that is used in this age. And in doing so, force and human strength are corrupted from their original goal of showing superior physical status and attaining needed resources to uses such as enslavement and human sacrifice and pitching one city's pride against another. These are the types of ways that force is used in this age, in the age of religion. This is indicative of the survival focus of the previous age being corrupted into an elite group deciding who survives and under what conditions. There is also the use of the previous theme of survival being used as a ruling system in this age with religions and, quote, divine rulers claiming that obedience to them or to their gods will result in the survival of the people. And there's that cunning aspect right there. And more importantly, in their survival in the afterlife. And uh, that's where you're getting into more of the immaterial. And so this is a mixed age, by the way, as we're going from material to immaterial. We started off with an age that was more immaterial, more spiritual, so to say. This age is a mix between the two, and so we're seeing aspects of those really starting to come into play. Society is now often organized around cities, where leaders use cunning and religion to build social structures that keep subjects within the desired concept of society. 
New advancements in technology would include centralized government and bureaucracy, which are needed to implement these religions and to organize life in a city. And they use cunning on a societal level. And you have to have the bureaucracies and the centralization in order to do that. And so we see that there are corrupted aspects of the previous age being used in this next age. And even though this age of religion is the age of the warrior under Sarkar's framework, you still see how this is where you start seeing cities, like I talked about, and you start to see the bureaucracy start to grow, and this is when you start to have the idea of armies and things like this. This is in the age of religion because religion is what is used for the method of control. It's an age of cunning. And so then the next age would be the age of empire. And so even though this is the age of the priestly class, the it's really more the intellectual class, the academic class. And so you could think of maybe the Roman Empire as a good example of this. And this is moving into the more purely material, more purely sensate culture and the age of empire is referred to roughly by William Henry Smith as an age of autocracy. He, I think, uses the term survival and the term religion, and then he says autocracy, plutocracy, and then technocracy would be the way that he frames that. And so uh, I am obviously not, I'm framing it as the age of empire, but just to give you some reference points here. And so the age of empire is this autocratic age. It is exemplary of the will to master and control. That is the main dominant drive of this age. The idea is that one man controls an empire or one empire controls conquered territory or one group controls important trade routes or whatever. It's all about this desire to master and to control. This is the idea in, in a material way. And so now brute force and cunning have been mastered to an extent that they can both be equally used by the technology of the previous age, by this centralized bureaucracy to further the agenda of the ruling elites. This is an age of consolidation and expansion. There is mass consolidation of power with mass expansion of the reach of that power. So now the previous age and its methods are further corrupted. Of course, this is the way it works. Religion is no longer the dominant ruling force and ideology, but rather it's a tool and an aspect of the culture. So again, this is more of a, a sensate, a materialistic age where religion does play a part. Again, it doesn't just disappear, but it doesn't play that dominant role anymore. It's more of a materialistic, a Machiavellian approach. It really underlies the rule of the empire and feeds it support and legitimacy and loyalty the method of cunning is no longer used to apply religious morals and to keep society loosely in check like it was in the previous age. But again, that is corrupted. It's rather been corrupted further into mass social engineering, propaganda, leveraged power plays, and more complete control overall over the structures of the society. Societies are now organized around 
basically proto-nationalism with one centralized bureaucracy using a mix of brute force and manipulative cunning to keep entire populations subjugated. The technology, the technological advancements in this age, they are things like organized militaries and standing armies, which are now used to accomplish the goal of complete control over the empire and surrounding territories. And so, again, it's not that force and brute force and the role of the warrior, they're not being used to defend a population or to secure a city's place in their region. No, they're being used to create an entire empire, to subjugate entire populations. This is a corrupted use of a previous age. And so that is the age of empire. Now, the next age would be the age of economics. It is driven by the will to take and the will to hoard. It's the same desire here, to take, to hoard, to acquire, however you want to word that. It is the age of nation states who all want to take as much land, as much power, as much wealth as they can from each other in a basically a zero-sum kind of Malthusian world. That's their perception, at least, of the world. And for a reminder, Thomas Malthus, he was the one that theorized that resources on Earth are limited and extraction levels grow linearly, but human consumption grows exponentially. And so because of this, at some point, the human population growth is going to hit a point where consumption is at a higher level than the amount of resources available to be consumed. And that's not a good place to be because then you don't have all the things you need to support your population and people are going to die. And so that is not something that's going to work out in the long run. So the implication was that nations must secure as many resources as possible as quickly as possible so they aren't the ones who run out when the population increase rises above the resource output level that can support them. So this was one of the main ideologies driving the colonial era and especially the British Empire. The new method that rises to prominence in this age would be the method of skill. And again, talking about the age of economics, think of where modern economics comes from. You can think of Adam Smith and the wealth of nations. This is all coming out of the British Empire. And so even though it is an empire, it is not along the model of the previous age. We are starting to get new methods and new tools and new technologies. It's a new age. This is the age of economics. And so the true wealth of nations that Adam Smith talks about is more focused on economics, on trade, on resources. This is what the focus is on. It's not on building an empire from a more materialistic standpoint. And again, this is a mix of the material and the immaterial. We went from having a very immaterial view, a more mystical view, into a mixed age, the age of religion, into the age of empire, which is an age that's more materialistic and sensate. Now we are going back into the mixed state before we get back into the more mystical and spiritual again in the following age. And so this age of economics is mixed. When I talked about William Henry Smith, he talked a lot about the use of mystery and magic and cunning, and these are the types of things that are being used. And again, that's what's going on here. It's this mixed age. It's this 
idealistic age if you go for Sorokin's vocabulary. And so there is this new method that comes to prominence in the age, like I mentioned, this is the method of skill. And it shares dominance and is often working to bolster methods of cunning. So again, it's using some corrupted versions from before, but using its own new method of skill. That's how you succeed in business in the world of economics. It is about skill. And so while you still definitely have cunning and you even have some brute force at work here, the wars never stop. Don't you worry about that. That is now not the dominant method that's being used. So again, you have brute force and it's used when all else fails, but cunning is always running in the background with skill in the use of this cunning often being the deciding factor for success. So think about how wars are fought and think about war strategy. This is often the thing. So it's not about numbers. It's not about purely brute force. It's about tactics and strategy, but it's really about who has the skill to carry out that strategy and has the people who have those skills in play so that they can carry that out effectively. So cunning and skill now play the largest role in battles and warfare versus the earlier dominance of sheer brute force and numbers Cunning is applied liberally through propaganda, politics, negotiation, these types of things, but it's become clear that some players are more skilled at these crafts than others, and some methods are superior to others. So skill and cunning in industry drive economies, which are the lifeblood of this age. That is the age of economics, the one that we are in or coming out of or just left. That would be the age that comes next that we are heading into or that we're in now would be the age of science. The age of science is governed by the will to know. This would be the age of technocracy by William Henry Smith. This would be the age that we are probably headed into or maybe overlaps the fourth turning with the first turning. And the first turning is probably where it really sets in if you look at the fourth turning framework here. And so we're probably in the middle of this mix between the two. And so this is the age that is dominated by the more mystical mindset, the ideational mindset, the immaterial mindset. This age of technocratic governance is the time period where you have the glorification of the, quote, experts. The key method in this age is now skill, with cunning becoming a secondary influence. And so previously, you had cunning and skill, and still using some brute force, but cunning and skill was the main thing. The one before that was cunning and brute force, and before that, you had just cunning, before that, just brute force. So we're starting to see these combos come into play, and this new combo would be the combination of cunning and skill, but skill becomes a far more dominant player than it was in the previous age because we've already settled a lot of these issues from the previous age that required a lot of things like manipulation and propaganda, negotiation, politics, these types of things that I mentioned about the previous age, the age of economics. These things are not quite as necessary anymore because society has already shifted with its morality, with with its outlook, with its perception of things. Again, going back to that idea of how reality is shaped by 
perception, by the immaterial, by the mystical, and how that might not be true at first, but once society really changes and once society really takes that to heart and starts to see things and perceive things differently as a society, once that becomes the morality, the ideology of a whole society, it actually does change reality. And once that sets in, you no longer really need the manipulation aspect to make it set in. That's still running in the background, yes, but it's no longer dominant. Now skill is dominant. Now you can really focus on the aspects of skill. So now the technocrats have the skill and technology to implement social engineering goals effectively and efficiently. The masses not only rarely meaningfully rebel, but they actually support the tools and methods of the expert technocrats. They look to them. They trust the experts. So look at like pre and post 9-11 or pre and post COVID-19. There are many tools and methods that were unthinkable prior to these events, but end up being demanded by the masses after. So for 9-11, you have the aspect of monitoring and storing communications of private citizens. This was a horrible thought. This would be against everything in the Constitution and everything you know related to freedom and liberty. And so they were unthinkable. But once 9-11 hit then all of a sudden they went from an unthinkable act of constitutional treason to a necessary and harmless solution for global terrorism. Gotta fight those horrible terrorists. And so that is the shift that happened with COVID-19. You could say that prior to COVID, tracking and tracing all citizens via their own personal devices went from being dystopian science fiction to another necessary and harmless solution demanded by the public in response to a global problem. These are the shifts that happen. There's a corruption of the previous age in the form of corporations. They had previously gained prominence through capitalism, but are now using this power and economic leverage to join the ruling class. And so that's, again, what, what Vin was talking about, about the corruption of that class, of the merchant class. So economics is now used as a means to acquire power and influence as much as, if not more than, wealth and resources. So again, it's not about making profits. We don't necessarily have physical warfare as being the prominent tool that nations use. No, it becomes economic warfare. It is things like sanctions or getting a third world country reliant on fossil fuels and oil and big pharma, and then they are necessarily reliant on the supply supporting nations that provide these resources and more not the nations more the corporations these mega corporations that are now in this corrupted form in this age of science again a corrupted version of the previous age is now being used in the current age it's this pattern that keeps going and going and going and going so this is a break from traditional capitalism which is simply about gaining wealth on an individual or a national level and so if you think of the role that big tech firms played in the previous examples of 9-11 and COVID-19, the governments didn't provide the means 
They didn't provide the technologies for these applications. It was big tech. They were the ones that provided the software, the sensors, the data storage, the algorithms. Big tech provided these things and then partnered with the government to implement the projects using their own technologies and thus gaining significant power behind the scenes. And that's the way things really played out. Again, the merchant class is the one that truly has the power. And as we shift into this age of science, into this idea of technocracy, again, go back to William Henry Smith, what is a technocracy? It's a system where you have this council of scientists, these technocrats, these technicians, the engineers, the scientists, these types that are, you know, this class of people, go back to Plato, the philosopher kings that are governed by the will to know, they are the ones that not only have the power, but that the masses want to have the power. But again, it's not that governments just totally disappear. It's not that politics drop off the the stage of the earth. No, they're still there. They're just a little more corrupted and playing a little more in the background. And that's the way things work. So again, it's the same pattern that plays over and over and over again. There are some things that I was reading recently. I read through uh, Ted Kaczynski's uh, Technological Slavery, which I would highly, highly, highly recommend if you are interested in these things, because he talks about the progress of technology and how that really dictates the progress of a society in not so much in a positive way. But a lot of the things he says is absolutely spot on. So let me read you, this is paragraph 131 of Technological Slavery. Technicians, we use this term in its broad sense to describe all those who perform a specialized task that requires training, tend to be so involved in their work, their surrogate activity, that when a conflict arises between their technical work and freedom, they almost always decide in favor of their technical work. This is obvious in the case of scientists, but also appears elsewhere. Educators, humanitarian groups, conservation organizations do not hesitate to use propaganda or other psychological techniques to help them achieve their laudable ends. Corporations and government agencies, when they find it useful, do not hesitate to collect information about individuals without regard to their privacy. Law enforcement agencies are frequently inconvenienced by the constitutional rights of suspects, and often of completely innocent persons, and they do whatever they can do legally, or sometimes illegally, to restrict or circumvent those rights. Most of these educators, government officials, and law officers believe in freedom, privacy, and constitutional rights, but when these conflict with their work, they usually feel that their work is more important. There's another part just prior to that, again, in Technological Slavery by Ted Kaczynski. This would be paragraph 128 that I think also is worth mentioning. He says, While technological progress as a whole continually narrows our sphere of freedom, each new technical advance considered by itself appears to be desirable. Electricity, indoor plumbing, rapid long-distance communications, how could one argue against any of these things? or against any other of the innumerable technical advances that have made modern society. It would have been absurd to resist the introduction of the telephone, for example. It offered many advantages
advantages and no disadvantages. Yet, as we explained in paragraphs 59 through 76, all these technical advances taken together have created a world in which the average man's fate is no longer in his own hands or in the hands of his neighbors and friends, but in those of politicians, corporation executives, and remote anonymous technicians and bureaucrats whom he as an individual has no power to influence. The same process will continue in the future. Take genetic engineering, for example. Few people will resist the introduction of a genetic technique that eliminates a hereditary disease. It does no apparent harm and prevents much suffering. Yet, a large number of genetic improvements taken together will make the human being into an engineered product rather than a free creation of chance, or of God, or whatever, depending on your religious beliefs. And so that wraps up his section there. He's got a lot of, again, very good points that, you know, while I may not agree with some of his philosophy, and I think most of us would probably not agree with mailing bombs to people and killing them, a lot of his philosophy in regards to the effect of technology on society and how that changes society and some of the dangers of that, definitely worth looking into. And I think he really hits on some of these aspects that I was just talking about, about the technicians, the ones who are ruling, they become dominant in the age of science. They're related to the corporate world, but more of a corrupted version of that, more of the technocracy. And you have these things that are more immaterial, more magical, more mystical, things like genetic engineering, things like the technology that we use. And that is those are some of the key aspects of this new age that we are in or entering into. This is all a part of the Dim Age. As as Venarmani talks about the Dim Age and he's presenting this idea, I want you to realize that there are so many things behind this. There are so many layers upon layers upon layers. It's webs within webs, plans within plans, you know, however you want to look at that. And there are so many people behind a lot of these ideas that really back up a lot of these things that he is presenting. When he says we are entering an age of magic, you know, that sounds kind of catchy. It's good from a, you know, marketing perspective, but there's a lot more to that than just sounding catchy and sounding cool and it's, oh yeah, technology, yeah, that makes sense. No, there's so much more to that. So while I didn't cover any of those other people or frameworks or theories in their entireties, Hopefully, I covered enough to give you the basics so that you understand a lot of these backgrounds, a lot of these side streets that you can go down, a lot of these individuals and people that you can look into yourself, which I would highly recommend doing. I just loaned out my copy of Technological Slavery by Kaczynski to somebody. And again, I just got done reading that myself. And there are many others. I mentioned the Sorokin book. You've got the fourth turning. Lots of options here to look into that, again, I would recommend doing. So to kind of wrap up this section here, I, I guess the next thing to say would be that with this next age, the next age of science, of mysticism, of technocracy, this is getting back into the age of the commoner when you're going for Sarkar's uh, different classes of people. And this makes a lot of sense. We are hearing a lot of talk about things like equality or self-sufficiency or the social body or decentralization. It's all about the common person, the individual person, but it's not as an individual. It's as a collective of the the total social body. And 
that's an interesting thing. When you look at something like communism, for example, you have this ideology that covers an entire population of people that's all about the common person, you know, in theory at least. And so it's all about the commoner. It's the age of the commoner, but it is in this communal sense of the social body as a whole. And again, that's how William Henry Smith, uh, I mentioned the term the common wheel. He uses that term over and over again. That's what he's talking about. If you look at Brave New World and the idea of the social body, that's what they're talking about. And so that's what you're getting into. And it makes a lot of sense when you hear a lot of these key terms being used. Another thing to point out that might seem like a contradiction at first is that that in this age of science, it is the intellectual, the priestly class. It's the experts that are really running things. That's the idea of a technocracy. It's the technocrats. So you would think that this would be then an age of that class, but we're saying it's the age of the commoner. So I think we need to get into this just a little bit more very briefly. And it's, it's pretty simple, actually. It's that the idea of wokeism, of being politically correct, of being a member of the Church of Woke, that is what is really running everything. That is what is governing the priestly class, the intellectual class. They can't do anything if they're going against the Church of Woke. So if you think of a politician that comes out and says that marriage is a biblical contract that is between a man and a woman that lasts forever, there's no way they are going to make the national stage. And if they do, it'll be barely and they won't have a whole lot of influence. There'll be a lot of pushback, all this kind of stuff. What if a medical doctor comes out and says, no one should take this experimental COVID vaccine that they're pushing. Uh, wearing masks the way that they are mandated now is not something that is medically verified to be effective and it doesn't work. There's no point in doing it. In fact, it might have even more harms that it causes than good. If a doctor comes out and says these things, then they can get fired. There are many that have been fired for saying similar things. It's the same with the teacher who is teaching their class. And what if they teach something like absolute morality or absolute ethics or biblical ethics or something like this? They probably won't keep their job if they're in the public school system. And so this idea of the church of woke, of wokeism, uh, political correctness, whatever you want to call it, that is actually what runs the priestly or intellectual class. So even though these technocrats are the ones that are basically ruling things in the age of science, in the age of technocracy, they themselves are being controlled by this ideology of the Church of Woke. It's control without control. It's this ideology that pushes a society forward. Same things that William Henry Smith talks about. So I think that deserves some clarification there, where it seems like a contradiction at first to say they would be the ones in charge, but it's the age of the commoner, when in reality, it is the age of the commoner because this common ideology of the common people, that is what actually truly governs the priestly class. Now, you do have a difference between equality and self-sufficiency. Those are two very different things, or the social body and decentralization. Now, while they can be used together, and there probably will be aspects of both, I would recommend that we focus on the latter rather than the former, on self-sufficiency, on decentralization, on these aspects of the age of the commoner, just like I had mentioned earlier on about the difference between the idea of the kingdom of God and the ideas of the church of woke. These are two different 
frameworks. These are two different ways of approaching the dim age and approaching how we live our lives. And so while they are still under similar frameworks, I would say, you know, it's still a theocracy, whether you go for the kingdom of God or go for the church of woke, but they are very different theocracies. And while it's still the age of the commoner, whether you look at decentralization and self-sufficiency or whether you look at the social body inequality, there is still a very big difference between those two different ways that you can look at it. Now, in previous transitions, and I guess the easiest example would be the one that I did the second season of my podcast on, that would be the Reformation time period. That would be in my opinion, the closest parallel to the things that are going on right now. If you want a snapshot of history, of a time of big change that is similar to what we're going through now, then that would be the one to look at. And if you're interested in that, go back and listen to season two of Our Foundations, and you can learn much, much, much more about that. I went on and on about that. Lots of good stuff to pull out of that. I did some really good interviews in there as well. You've got Pete Quinones, which a lot of you are probably familiar with. He was the first person I interviewed, and that really uh, touched a lot on libertarianism and his views on that, and we got a little bit into the parallels. But as I got on later and later, I brought on a Catholic theologian, and we got into some people that are hosts of history podcasts, focus on those time periods, and really got into some really good stuff as that went further on. So I would recommend that. But Uh, Where I'm going with this is that if you look at that one snapshot, or if you look at a framework like the fourth turning, or if you look at the example of the cycle of empires, when you hit this age of transition, when you hit this fourth turning, this crisis period, when you hit the peak decadence and corruption of a civilization or an empire, the transition period after that let's say the Thirty Years' War, for example, or after the fall of Rome and the Dark Ages, these are some tough time periods. These are not great, you know, in a lot of ways for society. And so there are many reasons why being aware of this, that we're going through a transitional age and that there's a lot of baggage that comes with this. There are a lot of historical precedents that will tell us that we should be aware and we should be preparing in some ways for that. Now, I'm not telling you to be a 100% prepper and prepare for the apocalypse and the end of the world, but I would say that it would be a very good idea to build your own resilience to whatever it is that could happen, whether it be mass censorship, a big police state, surveillance state that gets built up, or whether we have a huge economic downturn and crash, or whether you have, you know, full-out secession and civil war in the United States. You know, that's actually possible. I, I wouldn't quite say it's likely, but it is really possible. And so those things are a lot more possible than uh, an end-of-the-world apocalyptic type scenario. Not that that is impossible. It's a non-zero chance, but still a very, very low chance. And I wouldn't necessarily uh, at least recommend that you dedicate your whole life to that. But one of the interesting aspects is that almost all of these transitions throughout history included a major war. Warfare was a big component. You had the Thirty Years' War was one that I mentioned. You had the invasion of Rome by the Gauls and the Goths. And that was, you know, a lot of warfare going on there. You had the Civil War, you had the World Wars. A lot of times there is warfare going on, major wars that happen. And 
that could happen. We could have a World War III type scenario. But the other, and what I would hope would be the actual way it would play out, is that if there is this aspect of warfare in this transitional period, which again, historically, there's a very good chance of that if these patterns continue, there is a chance that this is actually more of an economic war and a technological war. And like I mentioned when I went through the ages of man and how these things are changing, when you hit the age of economics, economic tools are used more than warfare, than physical warfare. It's not that the wars end, they you know obviously never end, but you have this use of things like sanctions and economic dependency and uh, conditions for entering the world markets and all these kinds of things. These are tools that are getting used more and more. And as we are shifting out of the age of economics and into this next age, that should be an even more prominent aspect of warfare, which I would argue is probably actually a good thing. If we can avoid the physical warfare and nuclear warfare, that's probably going to be a very good thing. Now, on the other end, you have this technological aspect where things like drone strikes and things like this are going to be a lot more popular, and they already are. Obama was the drone king, and Trump, I believe, used more drone strikes than Obama even did. And so, you know, obviously, as like Kaczynski talks about, as technology improves and as these new improvements come out, there really is no stopping it. It keeps coming, and in the end, it's not all for good, even though there are good aspects. And so as we get into this idea of a transitional period being a rough time period and being one that includes aspects of warfare, again, my hope would be that that is economic and technological warfare more than physical warfare. But either way, it's it's the whole point that the transitional period is rough, and it probably will involve something of this sort. So being aware of that, how these things have played out throughout history, how these cycles are being predicted is very helpful. And with that, I'm going to stop. This is a two hour long episode. I was planning on doing one hour and getting through all my notes. And now I've done two hours and got through half my notes. And so I don't know what I'm going to do. We'll see. I very well, I I guess I have to, I guess the next episode is going to be another elaboration episode where I actually get into the is and the ought and talking about the theocratic technocracy and the role of Christianity and pop Christianity, the kingdom of God versus the church of woke and the different extremes there. Uh, that, that I guess that's what I will be getting into in the next section. But this uh, section that I just did, this whole episode, I didn't want to break any of that up because as you can tell, it is all connected and they are so closely intertwined and connected and they all have all these different aspects that are so similar. Like like Vin talked about, about the idea of the sensate versus the ideational. He knew what I meant, even though he had never heard that before, because they are so similar, because they're pointing out the same thing. But as you can tell, there are so many other aspects to all these different theories and all these other frameworks and such that it really is very enlightening to be able to look into all of these different individual ones and then mesh all these things together. And I am currently working on a book that kind of does that. It it was going to be like a few side chapters to a different book I'm working on, and it'll probably be its own book in and of itself. But that's something, again, that I've dedicated a lot of research to. And so hopefully I can present that in such a way that it really brings out some more insight and understanding to the interview that Vin and I did and the things that we are saying 
playing. And that's my goal with these episodes is to really bring out that depth that was there. But, you know, without doing a 10 hour long interview, we can't get into all these things. You know, some of these are just side comments, but there's so much behind it. And so that's what's going on here. Now, I will say that if you are new to the podcast, at the very least, start off with the first segment of the Ven Armani interview, without a doubt. But if you're interested in these other things, I mentioned season two about the parallel with the Reformation. Season one was all about the evolution of systems in our society, the education system, the governmental system, the economic system, and how those changed and wrapped up with everything from blockchain to homeschooling to agorism and basically all these alternative movements kind of at the end of the evolution at least according to you know our current time frame where we are now today and then um, the current season that we are in now is kind of this actually it's not really a season in and of itself it's this interim period in between season two and three I've done a lot of personal opinion episodes and current updates and things like that that you might be interested in you can peruse those as well and the next season we will get into this idea of the early church and the kingdom of God so if you're new to the podcast that should help you out. And if your own podcast player doesn't let you go all the way back to the beginning, just go to the website. There's a link in the show notes and you can go all the way back to episode one because it is chronological. So if that's something you have a desire to do, start at the very beginning. It definitely will help. Kind of like how all these theories build on themselves. It's the same thing with especially season one of the show. So that's everything, I think. Thank you very much for listening and for being a part of this dive that we're doing into all of these different things. I am very encouraged to see that a lot of people are very interested in this. I think this message really resonates. It really gives a way for us to understand the craziness that's going on in our society and the the craziness that... I don't know, just talking to people and seeing what's going on, it just seems crazy. But when you look at it from this framework, from all these things that we're talking about, everything involved surrounding the dim age theory, it makes a lot more sense when we can see it through this lens. And so uh, I am very encouraged that there is a lot of interest in this and that you are here listening. So thank you. And thank you, especially if you have left a review or a rating. If you are interested, you can follow on Twitter. There's a link in the show notes there. Again, I mentioned the website. There's more stuff on there. For those of you that are supporters on Patreon, thank you very much. At some point, I will put the entire interview on the Patreon page and you have a private podcast feed and you can get that on there. I also have done two appearances recently on other podcasts and I'll upload those on there. I guess I can go ahead and make a shout out for that. I was on the Oddcast Feet Odd Man and on that podcast he covers a lot of things related to especially conspiracy and things like that and he's got a lot of really interesting interviews he's done and topics that he's covered and I went on there and talked about Christian agorism and the kingdom of God and the dim age theory and how all of these things really connect together. And it was a really interesting interview. Um, I enjoyed it. He said he really enjoyed it and had some of his listeners have come over and started to get interested in this series of episodes as well. So if you're coming from there and that's where you heard about this, Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in more about those types of things, uh, go listen to that interview that I did on the Oddcast. I think it was a good one as well. And so with that, I think we are all done here. Thank you very much for all of your support of all kinds. Please come back next time. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. 
Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.